Hello, friends and relatives. Welcome back to season two of All My Relations. Woo! Season two. Woo! <laughs> Woo! <laughs> we are so happy to have you here with us. Uh, we just want to say that we love you, we're grateful for you, and we really do appreciate you taking time out of your lives to join us today. Yeah, we cannot thank you enough for the love and support for season one of the podcast. Uh, It was beyond our wildest dreams when we had a random phone call a year or so ago to talk about this and to now know that we've had so many uh, listeners, so many conversations, and the impact has just been truly amazing to us. So Wado, thank you to all of you for listening and for supporting. It's been amazing. Mm-hmm. Well, for those of you that are new, we'll take a moment to introduce ourselves. My name's Matika Wilbur, and I'm from the Swinomish and Tulalip tribes here in coastal Washington. And I'm a photographer with Project 562, a filmmaker, a writer, and the co-host of this project with Dr. Keen. Hi, <laughs> I'm Adrian Keen. <laughs> I'm Adrian Keen. I am a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. I am a faculty member of American Studies and Ethnic Studies. I'm a writer. I'm a scholar. I'm a blogger. I'm a sometimes tweeter, and I am the author of Native Appropriations mm-hmm. and also the co-host of this fine project. This season is broadly focused around wellness, wellness of ourselves and how the health and protection of our lands are tied to our health and protection and well-being. To start things off for this season, we wanted to kind of talk a little bit about what's been going on in our time off, quote unquote, uh, and sort of what these ideas of wellness and being in good relation to self mean to us right now, because we both have a lot going on. It's just, doesn't it always feel like that, Adrian? There's just so much always going on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hey, it's Adrian coming to you from April 2020. I wanted to interrupt here uh, because this episode was recorded a really long time ago. And as a result, it might feel a little weird um, that the tone is relatively light um, and there's not a big acknowledgement of what is going on in the world. Um, But Matika and I still wanted to offer this episode as maybe a distraction. Um, Maybe it could be something to uh, having your ear holes rather than whatever is on Netflix. Um, And also thought there might be some value in bringing y'all up to speed on to what's been going on in our lives um, before we launch into season two. But she and I will come back with you at the end of the episode to talk about what's been going on lately and sort of give an update um, into how our lives have been post and during lockdowns and quarantines and all that has been going on. So enjoy this episode. Uh, hear us laugh and be light when life felt a little bit different. And then we'll talk to you again at the end. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
I think, Matika, you should probably start because your update is probably the biggest and most exciting. Um, we left off at the end of season one with the announcement that Matika Wilbur was going to have a baby. And now <laughs> there is a new... Matika has a baby. <laughs> <laughs> and everything is different <laughs> and amazing. So tell us about it. How? Right. Tell us about your little one. How... How has everything been? You gave birth. What was that like? <laughs> um, <laughs> I, yes, a, a whole baby. I pushed out a whole baby. <laughs> <laughs> no, for real. I. That's what I said right after I gave birth. I said, a whole baby came out. <laughs> Good thing it was a whole baby. Oh, I feel so blessed too. I, you know, I mean, I, my pregnancy was a whirlwind in that I worked through my entire pregnancy up until the day before I gave birth. And I do think that if I was going to do it again, yeah, it was so wild. I, I mean, I had a speaking tour the last week of my pregnancy and, and I was at Stanford and Berkeley and San Jose State and then flew home and then had a baby. And I think if I was going to do it again, if I had the chance, I would take off like the whole last trimester just so I could be barefoot because barefoot because it's so hard to get my shoes on because my feet went from being like a size seven and a half and people have always made fun of me for having tiny feet to like suddenly being like a size nine. (laughs) It was wild. (laughs) Dr. Keene. But. (laughs) <laughs> Dr. Keen says, but yeah, I, it, um, you know, it's been amazing, Adrian. I, it has been this radical cosmic shift that I was not even a little bit prepared for. I mean, I did all of the things that we're that you know that we think to do I I nested really hard and you know bought a house (laughs) you know and bought a house and closed like four days before Alma came and it was so funny because you know on the day well you know so I came back from Berkeley I we were having ceremony at my house I went straight into ceremony and um, then the next day I went to go pick out carpet because we closed on Friday and it was Sunday and um, I was like, okay, we're 10 days away from the due date. So I have 10 days exactly to get the carpet, get the paint and get moved in, get a nursery uh, before the baby gets here. Oh my God. <laughs> so I'm in carpet warehouse. And I, that morning, I mean, I had been in a, in so much pain and looking back on it now, I think I was having contractions and I just didn't know it because contractions are not like, they weren't like the movies, Adrian. It wasn't like, <laughs> ah, you know, like I wasn't like screaming. It wasn't wild. It was like, you know, um, is that like a back cramp? Is it, it why does it hurt so bad to walk? You know, I'm fine. I'm, I kept thinking like, okay, I'm fine. I'm fine. I got this. So I took like a three hour bath and then went to carpet warehouse. And while I was in carpet warehouse, I realized that there was a little bit of, um, water coming out of me. Oh, no. <laughs> you water so broke in I carpet sa- warehouse? <laughs> <laughs> so I said, um, to Lino, babe, 
Um, there's some bath water coming out of me. <laughs> you know, residual bath water. And, and, <laughs> and, uh, and Lena goes, babe, I don't, I don't think bath water gets trapped up there. And I was like, what are you, you don't know, you're a guy. <laughs> and, and then, um, we proceeded to pick up carpet and I had to drive down to see my midwife who's in Seattle and I was in Swinomish on the res, which is about an hour and a half from Seattle. And I really wanted to see my midwife because she is incredible and does cranial sacral energy work and a number of different types of, of energy work. And I just was in so much pain and I thought, okay, if I can just make it down to see Ceci, I will feel better. And I will, you know, I'll make it through the day and we will get this house paid and we'll get moved in. And he was like, I don't know, babe. I don't know if you should really drive to Seattle by yourself right now. And my mom was like, why? What's going on? And Lino said, well, she has bath water coming out of her. And my mom was like, what? <laughs> my mom was like, I Matika, I, I really don't think you have bath water coming out of you. I was like, I do. And they were like, your, your water broke. I was like, no. And so we get in the car and my mom goes, well, I'm just going to come with you, Matika. And I was like, no, I'll go by myself. I'm fine and I'm independent. She goes, no, I'm coming with you. And I said, well, I'm driving. And so <laughs> I oh, drive myself my while God. contracting to Seattle and uh, get in to see Ceci. And, you know, I looking back on it now, like I got out of the car and I, I really could barely walk, Adrian. I was like stopping, you know, while walking across the block because I was in so much pain. And uh, I got in, I told Ceci, I said, Ceci, you know, there's bath water coming out of me. <laughs> she said, well, you know, Matika, that's very possible. I'm not going to tell you it's not because, you know, my midwife is awesome and knows how to deal with pregnant women. And <laughs> she said, but why don't we just check and see if it's amniotic fluid? And I said, okay. So we did the check and, the, you know, it came back blue. It was amniotic fluid. And she said... Matika, you are going to have your baby within the next 24 hours. And I was like, no, <laughs> I can't have the baby. I need to go shopping. <laughs> I need furniture. I need a bed. We don't have a crib. I can't. Can you stop the amniotic fluid from coming out? Because I need to move into this house first. And she was like, well, I, she, she said, you know, if you want to go shopping, you can. Nobody is going to stop you, but you might have your baby in a furniture store. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow. uh, so she said, why don't we just see, why don't we just see if maybe, let's just see how far apart your contractions are. Why don't you get on the table? And my contractions were like, uh, eight minutes apart. Oh my God. And you were like really in labor. I was like in labor. I was in full labor. Yeah. And, um, I just have a really high pain tolerance, you know, and, and I had been in a lot of pain because I had a complicated pregnancy. I had, um, diastasis of my pelvic bone, my pelvis. And so it was opening kind of the wrong way. And it was causing a lot of pain. So I just thought that it was just more of that pain, you know, and, and turns out it was contractions. And so I call Lino and I say, Lino, um, 
Ceci says we're gonna have our baby today and he's like I know babe you know like because I made him go to the house and paint the house he wanted to come to the midwife with me and I was like you can't come you have to go paint the house we have to move in so we met up with Lino and we went to the birthing center and Ceci went to meet us there and oh my gosh Adrian you know as I was driving back from Seattle to my house and you know with contractions that were seven minutes apart and then six minutes apart. And then uh, my mom, she said to Lino, don't you let her go to the house. No matter what happens, she cannot go to the house. She needs to go to the hospital. And I was like, I am, Lino, you are taking me to the house. (laughs) (laughs) Like I am not having this baby in a hospital robe. I am not having this baby without praying first. I need to go to the ocean and pray. I need to smudge off. I need baby outfits. You know, like I had all these like ideas of what I needed and wanted. And, um, and he said, okay, babe, <laughs> I'll take you there. <laughs> so, so we did. We went to the house and my mom, I got to the, and my mom brushed me off and uh, sang me a song and gave me some medicine. And then my contractions were almost four minutes apart. So I was like, oh, oh my God, God, I need to go to the hospital. <laughs> so, so we went and I got there um, to the hospital and it was so funny because when I got outside of the well it's the birthing center when I got to the birthing center my aunt Lorraine who is hysterical and grouchy and the head of the Northwest Indian Fish Commission and a very much a you know like the boss was saw me and was like ha, 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 you know like look at you waddling gee you're so pregnant and then she goes I then I started having a contraction I was like kind of like keeled over and crying and she was like oh it's happening Matika why are you walking? Get in a wheelchair. And I was like, where? And she's like, never mind. I will get the wheelchair. (laughs) (laughs) My bossy auntie went and got me a wheelchair. They wheeled me into the birthing center and they weren't, my contractions were coming so quickly. They weren't able to hook me up to anything, you know, like, which was good because I thought, you know, Adrian, like, did you know that for, um, when you're having a baby, like the two forms of pain management that they offer you are Demerol or an epidural. That's it. Whoa. Isn't that wild? Yeah. And like, oh no, not or fentanyl. That's it. Fentanyl, not Demerol. And fentanyl is like a really wild, dangerous drug. And I didn't, and you know, like no judgment for those that want to take fentanyl. I understand that, you know, like that shit hurts. But, <laughs> but I just feel like, I just feel like it, like in this modern age, there would be more options, you know, and actually they are allowing laughing gas now and they, they're kind of bringing that back. But I wasn't, I would, my contractions were coming so fast. I couldn't have any of those things. And, um, oh my gosh, Adrian, I just have never cried so hard in my whole life. I can't believe, I couldn't believe how much it hurt. Wow. <laughs> I was saying to my, to, to my midwife and to my, to Lino and to my mom, like, it hurts. I was crying. It's like, it hurts. And they're like, yeah, it hurts. Yeah, you're having a baby. I couldn't believe how bad it hurt. Like, it hurts. And, and, oh my God, God bless my midwife. She was like, I know it hurts, but, and it's unfair, but 
this is what we're doing. You know, we're opening. And I was like, okay, we're opening. We're opening. (laughs) Anyway, um, she was born three hours later. Oh my God. You know, and it, yeah, she was, I got to the hospital at four 30 and she came at seven. So it was actually not even a whole foot, three hours. It was pretty quick. And uh, my water broke at 10. She came at seven. So she has a lot of sacred numbers in there. She was born on 11, 11, November 11th at 7 PM. And, uh, she came in seven hours. So I feel like she has real strong medicine. This one, (laughs) you know, we, um, in my second trimester, we had her blessing way ceremony and it was really beautiful. My whole family came together and, and we prayed for her and my midwife was there and my, uh, we prayed for her journey, you know, that she would come into this world in, in a good way, in a clean way. And I felt really, I felt really good about that because one of my, one of my great concerns is, is how, you know, is how do we raise our children uh, without passing on this intergenerational trauma you know how do we how do we give them a good start and so I felt really blessed to be able to have you know um, this sacred ceremony this sacred birthing ceremony and it, and it really did feel like that you know it, and it it was a birthing ceremony of my my daughter but it was also I feel like a ceremony for myself of of mm. transformation and this massive, um, like radical change where I went from being, um, a woman, um, uh, you know, a person that identifies as a woman, uh, to being a mother. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know people have written great sonnets about this and poetry and <laughs> there's great writing to describe this experience, but I just, I just was not prepared for how it was going to make me feel. You know, I, I was sort of anticipating that I was going to be like these women that I was reading about on parenting blogs. And many people have warned me about postpartum depression. And I've read very, a lot of things and was preparing myself for like, not necessarily feeling immediately acquainted with my baby, you know, because people talk about that. They say like, you know, sometimes you have your baby and you, you don't necessarily feel like, you know, your baby right away, or you don't necessarily feel like you're, um, like you settling into motherhood right away, you know, like sometimes we feel resentful about this, this shift and change. And so I was kind of thinking like that was going to be me. I didn't really feel like I have, like, I haven't been one of those people. Um, you know, like my sister, when my sister was young, she, when you would ask her what she wanted to do when she grew up, she wanted to have a baby (laughs) and she did that, you know, right away. And when you asked me what I wanted to do when I grew up, it was like, I want to go to every continent by the time I'm 25 (laughs) You know, <laughs> and I did that, you know, <laughs> so, um, you know, becoming a mother is something I've, I've always thought I was going to do, but not something that was, um, it wasn't like, it, 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 it for me, it wasn't like, th- this is the most important thing I could possibly accomplish in my life. So it felt, I just, I wasn't ready. I didn't, it, it, I still don't really know how to talk about it, but this great big love happened to me. And, um, Tommy Porter told me about that. And, and I, in Haudenosaunee, they call that great big love, 
Gawandaguahua, which is they describe as the great big love that we have for a newborn baby. Mm-hmm. And and that I never and I've talked about that before, like in my social justice speeches, talking about, you know, the the path towards healing is Gawandaguahua, the great way the great big love. But it really wasn't until that moment um, that I turned, you know, that I had this precious new baby placed in my lap uh, that I felt that, that great big love. And it's magical. And I suddenly feel like I have to do better. You know, I have to, I have to do better for community, for family, for the world, for land, for water, um, for her. And it's, you know, I guess the first time I've ever loved something like way more than I love myself. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's radical. <laughs> yeah. It's beautiful. And, um, yeah. And so it was really, it was really great. I had a really great team around me, you know, and when Alma was born, my niece Quinna and I and um and my mom and my cousin and we sang her um we instantly sang her, you know, four songs. We sang her a woman's empowerment song and a prayer song and so that the first the first things that she would hear were, would be those songs, you know, so that she knows where she comes from. And then um, you know, we had her first bathing ceremony on the fourth day and we we took her afterbirth and we buried it beneath my cedar tree where my afterbirth and my mom's and my grandmother's are all buried so that she will know that she comes from this land you know so that she can gather cedar from that tree and and always have a place that she belongs to and and you know, we decided to take some time. We both took time off uh, from work and time off from social media and from being really active to just sort of be really close and quiet to take some time to to be with family and friends and to really welcome her. It's and it has felt like this great, the greatest ceremony I've ever participated in. You know, and and. Um, I was scared, you know, to, because a lot of our birthing rights were removed from us, you know, just like through the process of colonization, you know, that we don't have a lot of indigenous birth workers anymore. We don't necessarily use a lot of our traditional birth medicines and it's not standard practice anymore for, for our people in our community to have blessing way ceremonies or to, you know, to take care of the afterbirth in a traditional way or to, you know, have that first water ceremony for the baby. And so in some ways, you know, we're kind of um, reconnecting with those ceremonies that have been sleeping. And so I feel like in a lot of ways I'm doing my part of reinvigorating and uh, a part of our culture that has very much been taken away from us. And you know, it's like birth is political also, you know, like, and it's, and it's dangerous and scary, you know, and, and for me, it was very difficult because 
you know, IHS doesn't cover birth. You know, so when I went to the IHS clinic in San Diego mm-hmm. and because I'm geriatric, because I'm 35, I can't believe they called me that. You know, like I'm a this geriatric pregnancy, um, you know, I'm considered high risk and needed to have all of this extra care and attention, which and none of it was um, none of it was covered by IHS. And that was just so <laughs> unbelievable to me. And, it, you know, and so I'm not surprised that we have this very um that we have high rates of of problems with really with reproductive justice and and, and that's a, a topic i really do hope to get into more um in season two but um yeah i i've started it's it's changed the way that i think about how i'm meant to interact with the world anyways enough about me adrian Tell me about you. (laughs) Yeah, I'm so I have been off of social media for almost two months. Um, And by the time you are listening to this, I'll probably be back on. Um, But that was a decision that I made kind of on the fly. Um, I had come back from a meeting in New Mexico where I was spending time with um, some of my friends and uh, we had been talking about just social media in general. And I was realizing that I was kind of struggling with a lot of things in my life. Um, It had been it for the listeners who are in academia, you know this stage of life. Um, I went through reappointment this fall, and reappointment is like the midpoint to tenure. Other places call it like the third year review. Ours happens at the beginning of your fourth year, where basically it's like mini tenure, and you have to compile everything that you've ever done for <laughs> your entire academic career and uh, send off this dossier and write these narratives about your research and your teaching and your service. And those go to, at my institution, something called the Tenure Promotion and Advancement Committee, TPAC. And your department has to vote on it, and then TPAC votes on it. And if everyone is in affirmation, you are reappointed for four more years. Um, And I will go up for tenure in three years. And then you get a bonus year in case anything goes sideways. It's a lot. That was probably too much information. But I had to go through this reappointment, and it was really, really, really stressful. And it caused me to question every decision that I have made in my uh, academic career. It made me feel really insecure about my publishing record. It made me think that I had made wrong choices around how I spent my time. And it made me realize that the institution doesn't value the same things as me in terms of the community work that I do, in terms of things like this podcast, in terms of my blog. These things that I spend so much time on and see so much value in um, are not easily quantified by a university that works on metrics that were developed 100 years ago. So that whole thing was really stressful, and it definitely took a toll on me personally And so while I'm getting asked all these things at the university, I was reaching kind of a breaking point on social media because for me, as someone who strives to be relational, who tries to be accountable 
to community and to people and to commit to this idea of consenting to learn in public. It means that I care very deeply about what people have to say about my work or about the things that I am putting out on social media in terms of I want to know if I've messed up or if I've misstepped so I can correct and move forward. But what that means is that that desire to be accountable and to hear from people means that I'm opened up to all kinds of criticism all of the time. And I was reaching a point where I was having a hard time deciding what was valid and what was just mean and trolling or folks trying to tear me down. And it was really doing a number on my mental health. And it meant that I was spending too much time reading comments. I was desperately trying to respond to every single person who was asking me thing of uh, for things uh, through DMs on Instagram and DMs on Twitter and in my email. And I was just very overwhelmed with everything. So without a lot of extra thought, um, after a conversation with my friend Michaela, we both just deactivated all of our social media. And I kind of ghosted everyone. I didn't make any announcement that I was going to do it. I didn't really talk to anyone about it. I just did it. And so all of my accounts just disappeared. And it was funny because there were people who were like very concerned um, because I'm someone who lives a lot of my life online um, or so folks think. Um, And so all these people started sending me messages and are like, are you okay? What's going on? And I was like, no, I just need a break. So I ended up putting up a quick little blog post because people thought I got like thrown in Twitter jail or kicked off the platforms or something, um, or people were really concerned for my well-being. Um, So I had to let everyone know. But in that month, it was kind of a month and a half, two months. It was kind of amazing to see how much things shifted for the better without having that constant set of negative voices from the internet in my mind all the time. So it meant that for uh, that time, I really could focus on putting myself back together and reminding myself the good things that I have accomplished and what I have to be grateful for um, and why I do this and rebuilding those kind of human in-person relationships that had sort of uh, gone by the wayside for the last year or so as I've been uh, working through all the career and social media stuff. So I've developed a lot like in terms of thinking about what it means to have boundaries as a form of self-care, as a form of uh, self-accountability, I guess, Um, and how boundaries really are not a negative thing. Um, And so thinking about the ways that I can be supportive of folks, but also have those boundaries that I need to protect myself. Um, Because I also, in in the midst of all this, I'm trying to write two books and I, uh, am trying to be in a relationship and I'm trying to be a good faculty member and a good professor and a good mentor and all of these things. So boundaries have been really important. Um, so I've, I don't know, I've just been like working a lot on the very, what everyone kind of thinks is stereotypical self-care stuff, but I'm super into journaling now. I take a lot of time in the morning to, uh, journal and, uh, and, 
practice gratitude and make sure that I start every morning by smudging and really like focusing in on getting that right. Um, and I spent a lot of time asking myself, like, what are the things that make me happy? Like, what are the things that have brought me joy? Because I wasn't feeling a lot of that. I also am someone who's from Southern California and lives in the Northeast and winter is always really hard for me. Um, I definitely have seasonal affective disorder, which has the worst acronym ever of SAD. Uh, So I deal with SAD every winter and um, that's a challenge as well. So I think all of this was kind of compounded, but um, I asked myself kind of what are the things that make me happy? And for me, it's really being outside. It's doing uh, things that are fun and different and not just in the academic realm. Um, for me, it's really been learning Cherokee. It's been beading. It's been creativity in general. Um, and uh, none of that was being found in social media. So I've kind of had the time for the last, last bit to really focus back in on those. Um And I think the other thing in terms of boundaries that I did that I wanted to share, because I think it's a practice that I really would like other people to pick up as well, is my inbox was a huge source of anxiety for me in terms of my email. And I created this kind of aggressive away message, but one that really has saved my sanity and helped create those boundaries. Um, So it basically, anytime you email me on my work email, you get this bounce back um, and it says, OCO, thank you for your message. I apologize for the annoyance and inconvenience of this autoresponder. I receive an incredibly large volume of emails and requests and unfortunately have limited capacity to respond outside of my regular teaching, advising, service, and research responsibilities. And then there's like a list of bullet points. And so it says for office hours, advising, requesting letters of recommendation, see this document for large campus museum and other keynote events. Please contact speak out. Uh, At this time, I unfortunately do not have time to provide assistance or consultation on issues of cultural appropriation or native representations. But here are some resources. And then I linked to a whole bunch of different things, including my blog, things like the Reclaiming Native Truth Project, Illuminative Beyond Buckskin, National Congress of the American Indians report on mascots, uh, and it goes on and on. And then the last thing talks about what my research specifically is and who, what communities I work with, what methods I use, um, and says that I'm only able to take requests in that area because it there's only a couple of Native faculty at my institution, and it became that anything remotely related to Natives got thrown my way. So if there's some PhD student in the history department doing a project on 16th century natives in New England, they would come and want me to be on their committee or to work with them. And I know nothing about those things. So this autoresponder is a little annoying to my colleagues, I'm sure, because they get it every time they email me, but has brought me an immense amount of calmness uh, and really helped with a lot of those kind of anxieties around not being responsive enough or not being able to help people. Because there's this line, and I'm sure you feel that a lot too, Matika, between like wanting to be accountable to community and wanting to make sure that we are being good relations, but recognizing that sometimes that can take a major toll 
on ourselves as well and that there's a need to find that balance um, there. And I'm still trying to figure it out um, because I think I want to still know if I'm doing something wrong or if there's a way I can be better. But I also know I need to take care of myself if I want to keep doing this work. And so I can't read every comment. I can't uh, be thinking about that one person who clearly hates me for no apparent reason or whatever it is. So I think as I re-enter into social media, I'm going to be really cognizant of all of these things and that my relationship to the platforms have fundamentally changed um, because I can't continue to be the one voice that people look to that's like too much and something I never wanted and continually tried to not be. Um, And I was gone for a while and things were fine. So hopefully that meant that people found other voices during that time. And there's ways that I can continue to boost and and lift other voices because uh, it was too hard. And it takes a lot for me to admit that. But um, I think I'm ready to have a healthier relationship to it. I just want to be me like and I'm I'm weird and sad sometimes. <laughs> well, it's complicated, right? Because you want you want to help. You want to be an active member of community. You want to uh, give back to community. And uh, but it's also like the question for me is often like, is am I giving back if I'm on social media? You know, I I feel like when I write or when I do these podcasts, um, I'm really providing a service. I feel like when I take pictures and I tell stories in a good way, an authentic way, in a way that gives agency to the individuals, I'm doing that good work that I'm that was gifted to me that I'm supposed to do. But am I really doing that good work when I'm scrolling for for way too long? <laughs> you know. I, <laughs> it's hard for me to know and you know it's hard for me to know and it's not really like a judgment you know each into their own and I've I certainly spend way too much time on social media and 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 it's actually been a really helpful tool for me while traveling the country to have so many friends and family and community and people that have helped me connect with more community and that's been possible because of social media but I in my day-to-day life and especially right now I feel like I feel like every time that I pick up my phone and I'm scrolling when Alma is in this place that she's most of the learning she's learning right now is coming from looking at my face. And if I have Mm -hmm. this like dead face with no expression because I'm scrolling or watching television, she's not learning, you know, and that's um, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing right now. That's not active. That's not actively supporting community because the way I can really support community is by raising a really healthy baby you know and so I can totally relate to to what you're talking about That I that email that you sent out, Adrian, is hysterical. <laughs> I, my autoresponder. Oh my god! <laughs> it is so like it's so extra. Like that's the only word to describe it. But honestly, it's like changed my life. And so I think 
everyone who gets too much email and has like six things that people email them about all the time should totally make one. Yeah, I do this thing every year at the beginning of the year and, you know, in January where I get rid of everything in my inbox, you know, and so that I don't, because right now I have um, 16,290 unread emails from oh my from god Jan- starting in did you just say sixteen thousand starting yeah sixteen thousand that just started it's, oh god it's un- and i'm and i actively unsubscribe so they are not all like newsletters and you know opportunities for groupons <laughs> for longer lashes <laughs> <laughs> though there are quite a few of those there's some of those, some of those you know? <laughs> but uh, you know it's yeah it's it's overwhelming and I remember actually when people would call one another on the phone and that's what happened to me too Adrian when I went off when I like ghosted on Instagram and Facebook and uh, people were like, Is, how are you doing? Did you have your baby? And I heard from people via text message and phone call that I haven't heard from in years. Yep. Same, actually. And then I would also find that like I'd be doing something and I'd like take a picture. And then because I couldn't upload it, or I wasn't going to upload it to Instagram. I'd be like, who would appreciate this picture? And then I'd send it directly to a friend or a family member who would appreciate the picture. And then we would start a conversation and it just felt really different and nice. And it's so sad that we have to, I don't know. But honestly, like, I mean, I did miss, I have like a great community online too. Like there are people that I only know through Twitter. Like that's the only place that I interact with them and I miss them. So like there are, there are good things about social media too. But I think this break has reminded me that like the real life relationships are really important to my well-being and that I need to, I need to focus in on them a little more and put in the work that they deserve like they deserve it right because it's really hard i mean how many times have you been at a dinner table where people are looking at their phones and not engaging you know and that's um or when you're supposed to be you know like deeply connecting with your community with your with all your relations or deeply connecting with land or deeply connecting with water and instead we're looking at our phones and it's it's like is this relationship with my phone is it actually becoming toxic and damaging my other relationships and that's when I think it becomes really scary yeah so I feel good about this break and I do think that it has shifted my it like was enough of a clean break to really alter my relationship to the platforms in a healthy way um so We'll see. I really, yeah, we'll see how it goes. (laughs) But I did feel super out of the loop. Right. Right. I did subscribe to the New York Times and started reading the New Yorker (laughs) way more frequently. Like I I did find that I have much more time to read and read out loud. It's one of my favorite things to do. Uh, We know like when I wake up in the morning, it feels like such a luxury to wake up in the morning and read the newspaper and drink a cup of coffee. And I've been doing that lately. 
and reading out loud to the baby, <laughs> and she loves it. The baby, and we, you know, everybody in my home, my house does it. Lino and and Quina and I, when we have time, we all sit down and read together, and and it's so, it feels wholesome. It feels really wholesome, and long overdue. So, I would be really interested to hear from the people that are listening how. Uh, their relationships are impacted by social media or their relationships are impacted by their phone. I think that there's a lot of people that can relate to this. And I will say one other thing that I have noticed in this time away is that I have been reading the news a lot. And I also have been noticing that mainstream media does not cover native issues in the way that Twitter does. Like, I got back on Twitter for a little bit and all of a sudden was seeing all this stuff about blockades in Canada and all of these things going on around uh, pipelines and all this stuff that literally had not crossed any of the media outlets that I was reading on a daily basis. So I think that is one thing that I need from social media is that constant news source of like what's going on in Indian country because we don't get that from the New York Times, unfortunately. You're right. (laughs) You're so right about that, Adrian. It's so true. I don't know who says it, who said it first, but it's definitely true that it's, you know, indigenous erasure is visceral racism. And that erasure mm-hmm. is constant unless we're getting news from one another because the people in power and making the decisions about whose story gets told and how it gets told is certainly not coming from within our own community. And that's why there's a need for a podcast like this because I, we deserve to hear from one another and we need to because without each other's stories it's like we're going backwards and we want to go forwards, you know, so. And here is future current Adrian back again, (laughs) um, wanting to interrupt and sort of bring us back to what's going on now. And I actually think that's a nice place to transition and thinking about our, our need for one another's stories. And so Matika, Mm -hmm. welcome to current day (laughs) things have been wild and weird and you put together a beautiful episode a bonus episode about what's been going on in Indian country and the response but how have you been doing how's how's life in Seattle area where we all know was kind of hit really hard by a Mm -hmm. lot of this well you know this week has been particularly hard for me because uh, my aunt passed away from the coronavirus and um, and we buried her on Tuesday and I I was I've been really heartbroken actually about it you know she she was one of my favorites yeah. her uh, her name is Lisa and she was one of my mom's closest cousins so she's actually my cousin but she always insisted that I call her auntie because that's the Indian way (laughs) and and Mm -hmm. she worked in my mom's restaurant with us and 
we always used to joke that my mom only had a two butt kitchen. Like it was only big enough for two Indian butts to fit in, <laughs> you know, and that one of these days we were going to have a six butt kitchen <laughs> and, and she made fry bread at my mom's restaurant for many years. And then we worked in the gallery together and my mom also had a native art gallery. And so I have many fond memories with her and, and it was really uh, something, you know, to to not be able to bury her the way that we normally would. And, you know, we have strong customs around death, you know, and that we might, we come together right afterwards and nobody's alone and we stay together for four days until we bury the person. And, you know, the body's never alone. There's people that sit with the body and, you know, there's just all these customs around death and none of, we couldn't do any of those things. And, uh, it was so strange to not be able to go to my cousin's house and, you know, hug them and, you know, for those that lost their mom. And it was when I got the news, we went and sat outside of the hospital and my whole, there was like this big group of my family all sitting there, but everybody was sitting outside of the hospital in their cars, you know, and just like waving at one another. It was very mm-hmm. sad and it was very sad to, um, you know, to go to the cemetery and not be able to like hug anybody. And, and it was, it was beautiful at the same time though, because the community came out and, you know, like the cultural people came and they came with their drums and everybody was standing really far apart from each other, but they still sang and it was so comforting. And I felt really grateful, you know, to all the people that, that came and held signs and, you know, told us they loved us and reached out online and phone calls I received. And so I, even though, you know, I've kind of felt it's been, it's this new thing, but I felt really loved and taken care of by community anyways. And I thought, I thought that was really beautiful. So that's like, you know, my biggest update. And, um, and I'm so sorry. You know, it's just it's it's so real. Sorry. I guess I I guess it just took a long time for it to feel really real like this. And and that's not the only death that we've had in our tribal communities. You know, we haven't we've had more death in Tulalip, and and a lot of our tribes are being hit disproportionately. And I, it's not something that you're really hearing a lot about uh, on national news coverage. You know. Yeah. Ugh. But. Um, and besides that, <laughs> besides, you know, this like very heartbreaking thing happening, I've been in, in my house in lockdown uh, with my new baby, who is now five months old, but is humongous. <laughs> she's um, <laughs> she's a good 20 pounds now. <laughs> and and um, and she's a lot of fun. She's laughing and really happy. She's a really happy baby. And we've been doing all the things, you know, like growing a garden. And we've been, you know, it's been so magical to watch all these seeds come to life. And I've been working on this project about um, seed sovereignty for the last, um, you know, like five years I've been visiting with all of these people that keep seeds. And so I ha- I reached out to all of them. They sent me seeds. It's been really cool to grow indigenous seeds and to watch them come to life has made me feel like I'm, you know, participating in the revolution, you know, because we need them. <laughs> I'm doing that too. I can talk about it as Tell well. Me. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Who did you get seeds from? Um, yeah, so I have some that are in route from Tahlequah, um, from Cherokee Nation. Um, 
I've never grown anything before. <laughs> uh, I grew up in suburbia. I'm, I don't know how to do this. So, um, but something, it just like spurred this feeling in me that like, I wanted to do this and I needed to do this now. So um, there's like a Cherokee saying or a saying that a bunch of people in Cherokee always say that you're not like a real Cherokee unless you have a corn patch. And I've never had a corn patch. Um, So I have some corn and some beans coming. um, And I'm going to talk to Liz Hoover, my friend who does all the seed stuff and see if I can get at least some squash and maybe some other stuff um, and start small. But it's definitely oh and I ordered sweetgrass babies um that came in the mail. It was so amazing. They're all like wrapped up and growing like in really? the mail. <laughs> so those yeah. So those are growing in a pot outside and I'm really they're actually doing really well. So I'm hopeful that by the end of the summer I'll have some braids that I grew myself in my little Rhode Island backyard. Yeah. I saw this beautiful post from Linda Black Elk. Did you see how what she said? No, she was talking about how, um, you know, because this has been happening, everybody has been calling her and asking her, you know, how do I actually grow food? (laughs) And and you're like, Mm -hmm. what do I do? And like, how much water, how much soil, how much sunlight? And she just sort of said, you know, like, listen, these are really valuable questions. And we all have our fears around this. And it goes for all of us you know, that we haven't been taught the ways of our ancestors. And so we're sort of, you know, scared to grow food. But the truth is, like, we have to grow our own food. And, you know, that our ancestors did this. And even the most experienced gardeners are scared to go outside, you know, don't really know what's going to happen. So at some point, we just sort of have to take a deep breath, put a seed in soil, give it sunlight and water, and let it do its thing. (laughs) And that in itself is an act of decolonization because it's reconnecting with our ancestral life ways. And it's also cultivating these relationships with these plants that we always used to have. And so we're recultivating that within ourselves also. And I just thought it was a really beautiful, a beautiful uh, reminder. It made me feel like um, empowered in these you know, these moments where it feel, you know, I feel very yeah. powerless um, during this virus. There's not really a whole lot I can do besides stay home. Right. And I think that's kind of been the theme of a lot of like what's, I don't know, I think indigenous knowledge and like a lot of the sort of cultural practices that we have, like a lot of them are things that take a lot of time and need to be done slowly or take a lot of practice in order to become proficient and good at them. And in my prior to lockdown life, I really didn't have time for a lot of those things, or I told myself I didn't have time for a lot of those things. And it's been fascinating to me, uh, this period of time now that I'm home is the longest I have been in Providence without leaving since I moved here over six years (laughs) ago um this this stretch of time and at first that made me really anxious because I'm so used to like always having my suitcase half packed on my floor like what's the next thing where am I going but to have the time to just sort of be still has been a very strange gift in some ways um 
Like I've been making baskets, um, I've been embroidering, I've been working on Cherokee language um, stuff on my own. I've been baking, I've been making all these plans for the garden, like things that really beading, like lots of beading. And these are things that just necessitate like being still and taking time and uh, learning progressively. And I really have been grateful for that. And I feel like that's been something I've seen reflected throughout a lot of my Native friends is that a lot of folks are taking this time to do those sort of art forms or reconnecting with the land that they live on in ways that they haven't been before. Like everyone's going for a lot of like walks and hikes and like looking for being outside. I found cedar in my backyard. I'm really embarrassed to say that I didn't even know the tree that had been in my backyard as long as I've lived here is a cedar tree. Like that's embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But like just those little things of uh, like finding wild onions in the state park when I went for a walk and like that kind of stuff to be able to connect in different ways with the the land around me, I think has been really valuable. It's a total adjustment. I mean, I same haven't been in this in one place for this long in in over eight years it's your it's entire been adult eight life years <laughs> says I've spent this much time in one place and actually for me it's been this wild awakening um I you know because I went through this phase with social media since we talk about social media in this episode where I just mm-hmm. kind of stopped sharing all the things that I was doing because I felt um, really guilty about having the privilege to do these things, to travel and see new things and meet new people. Mm-hmm. And I felt like this sort of um, like embarrassment, like I shouldn't constantly uh, like tout on social media, you know, like, oh, look at these beautiful trees and oh, look at this beautiful land and and since I've been home and I've been on social media more than I have been in years, I've really appreciated people sharing positive, beautiful things. And it kind of has brought me full mm-hmm. cycle to remembering why I did this project in the first place was so that we could showcase uh, the beautiful, empowered, incredible indigenous stories from throughout Turtle Island for those that don't have the opportunity to do those things. And that, that that's a responsibility and a gift at the same time. And it's really been eye-opening for me. Uh, so I've decided, you know, okay, I'm going to start sharing more stories from my from the, that which I've collected and images. And, and I'm going to start doing that every day and sort of recommitted to offering that sort of um, service of, of uplifting imagery, so to speak. And um, I got to tell you, though, Adrian, like... I've been home more than I've been, and I feel like I've been way less productive. <laughs> you know, like, I think it's awesome you're doing all oh those things. Oh, my God. Absolutely. But it's so hard for me to get anything no, done. No, but I mean, like... <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, I'm doing those things, but, like, I also technically still have a full-time <laughs> job right now that is not baking bread and embroidering and making baskets. I am still a professor who is teaching two classes and has a book that is over two books that are overdue and has all these things. And I have felt like my brain is just 
broken. Uh, I can't concentrate on anything academic at this point. Like I pick up articles that I used to be able to read in like an hour and it takes me an hour to get through the abstract. Uh, I try to like write words and uh, before I could just bust out entire, you know, 2000 word blog posts in an hour or two. And now I sat for an hour and a half with uh, my students and I have been doing community writing time over Zoom, which has actually been really nice. But I sat for a whole session and wrote like a sentence. <laughs> so there's definitely like for while there are beautiful things like the stress of right now is very real inside my brain. And I am very aware of that mm-hmm. as well. And I now spend most of my time in a converted storage closet that is now my office in the basement so like things are just very different um so there are beautiful and amazing things but it's also really really hard and at the same time I am so so lucky in that I still am getting a paycheck and like all of my speaking things have been canceled as have yours and but like for me I still have another source of income um and so like I'm very lucky in that sense I still have health care like all these things but um yeah I think the the weight of all of this is really mm-hmm. real and it's hard to have the constant expectations even though people are very generous right now there's still a lot of expectations that like we shall we still should be productive um and i don't really feel like that should be the expectation or is even possible and i don't have kids right now either that's the other thing i keep thinking about is all of my family and friends who have kids that are out of school and they're trying to work full time while homeschooling kids and or have toddlers that are running around in the background of their Zoom calls or whatever it is. It's like this is this is a hard, hard thing that we are all experiencing it's, right now. It's also really hard on relationships. Like it's really hard to figure out how to do this well. You know, like I've I, like Lino works he's you know he's a game designer and he works all day long you know like he gets up at seven and he works on his computer from like seven to five o'clock it's a really long time in my opinion to work (laughs) you know yeah like like, you know that's a lot it's a like that's all day (laughs) five days a week when that's how many people work with you. I know. It's so crazy. And I just, you know, I don't understand. I'm, I don't know. I just, I've been a freelancer for so long that I don't, I can't relate to the nine to five situation that most people in this country do. I, I just, I, I, I just, I'm like, can you please make lunch? You know? <laughs> I don't know. But I think... One of the things that this time is offering us is a chance like everyone there keep there's all these narratives of like when it goes back to normal or when we return to normal or all of this, like when it goes back to what it was. But what it was was not good for most of us. You know, like we live in a very unequal and dangerous society for the people that we love um, who come from our communities and uh, hold these marginalized identities. And so right now is giving us a chance to think about like, what are the things that we want to return to? And what are the things that we don't? And 
it's been interesting to see like yeah, I do miss traveling to a certain extent, but I also realize that there is a lot of value in being able to have a smaller and quieter life on some level. Um, or I used to say yes to all kinds of things um, of people asking for demands on my time or whatever it is. And I'm realizing that there's a lot of value in being able to say no to certain things or when I don't have all those extra um challenges like pressing on my time I don't know I think as a whole like as a society I hope that we can use this time to like imagine and otherwise imagine a future that doesn't look like what we had before in a good way like not like things are never going to be normal again but like maybe normal wasn't so good yeah I I loved it if yeah. that makes sense in the last episode Dallas talked about that you know like how are we going to imagine a new future you know and I'm I'm really tired of hearing people say I want things to go back to normal I am there's going to be um, a new normal if you will but we have to come together as a people with one mind and one heart and really participating in this national dialogue and you know I think of yeah I think of this uh, of this experience that we're going through right now of pandemic and virus as a consequence to our own behavior to the way that we've been living and we we have no choice but to reevaluate you know it's like fundamentally this is exposing the flaws in our society and people deserve the right to safety. They deserve the right to health care. They deserve the right to have food in their belly. And we're not a society that actually believes that. And we can really see that now, you know. And, and I've mm-hmm. also been just like racking my brain about how to be of service during this time. You know, like what is the best way to be yes. a good relative? And I've been trying to think of ways to do that and I see outstanding members in our community doing really good work I think of like Matt Remley here who's an activist in the northwest who's been mm-hmm. you know delivering food to all of these different communities and Sunny Red Bear who's doing the same in her territory and and I know there's incredible organization happening for Navajo Nation and I just I feel really proud of our relatives that are really doing that good work and it's been it's pointing to the fact that our communities know our native communities know how to support one another like the way that we our communities are structured is a structure of mutual aid of supporting one another of redistributing um resources to folks who have less of like all these things that the broader world really needs right now again like with so many things indigenous knowledges and communities really like offer those lessons and it has been amazing to see like the way my very urban neighborhood is is coming together and like 
I've been hanging out with my neighbors more than I ever have. Um, we're anytime we need anything, we text each other and are like, hey, do you have a light bulb? Like, hey, I have I bought 50 pounds of flour the other day, which is a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been like redistributing flour all over Providence. So I've been dropping off flour at friends' houses along with like methodology books for my grad student and things like that. So um, and these are things that I like have learned from my my family growing up and like from my aunties and my grandma, like that's just what we do um, is support one another. And I think that's really beautiful too, to think about those lessons that um, we can draw upon from what we've always known. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a really good place for us to talk about the rest of season two. What do you think, Adrian? Absolutely. Um, and as we alluded to at the beginning of the episode in uh, pre-current time, the themes of this season two, as we kind of stepped back to think about the interviews that we had done, they really do center around broadly this idea of wellness, which might have something to offer us during this time. Um, and some of the themes might really resonate, too, as well. So what does it really mean to be a good relation uh, to our bodies, to our families, to our minds, to our spirits, to the land, uh, and to one another, as we always say. And to our quarantine partners. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Tyler, yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I am so fortunate. Like, my bae is the, just the best. He just is just really puts up with me. He doesn't get frustrated. He's so nice. You know, he cooks, he cleans, he takes care of the baby. I just like, I I feel like I just really lucked out to have a, a solid quarantine partner. And Quinna, you know, my niece that lives with me, she's also awesome. And so we've been managing pretty well. But God, I got to tell you, Adrian, this whole being held up for weeks at a time with the same people is a really new thing for me. And so I'm really, really want to put my, my money where my mouth is when I talk about being a good relation and just try to start right there with being, <laughs> just being a good, just trying to be good myself at behaving in quarantine. <laughs> that is a lesson I need as well. <laughs> Well, maybe we can learn those lessons next week from Thosh and Chelsea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So we're going to be coming back in about a week with um, an interview we did a while ago with Thosh Collins and Chelsea Luger, who run the amazing Well for Culture initiative, which you may have seen them on the Instagrams or recently they were in the New York Times in an article about food sovereignty, which was pretty cool. Um, and we talked to them about this idea of whole family wellness. So what does it mean to think about wellness from that kind of holistic entire family perspective? So that's what we have coming up for you next. And then we've got at least four more episodes of content that we've recorded months ago um, that we're going to be releasing about every week or so, maybe every couple of weeks um, for the remainder of the season. Yes. So we hope that you'll stay with us. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you to the people that make this possible. Mr. Teo Shantz, our right-hand man and guy that does everything. Thank you. Everything. <laughs> thank you to the Wisteria Fund. Thank you, Sierra Sana, for the episode art. Thank you to our Patreon subscribers. 
And most of all, thank you to our listeners. We love you. We love you so much. Please take care. Uh, Please uh, hold each other from afar. And uh, we send all of you good thoughts and prayers during this really weird and strange time. All my relations.